Thank you for tuning in to another great episode of the Connections with Purpose podcast. I am your host, Christopher Valona, and on today's show, we will listen today as people share their connections that have inspired purpose in their daily lives. They will share with us on what it took for them to discover their inner entrepreneur. Listen on today as the guest uncovers their path to success in their own words. So sit back, enjoy, relax. You might just be able to relate to a thing or two. Coming up, another amazing journey through Connections with Purpose. All right. Thank you for joining us today on Connections with Purpose podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Valona, CEO and Director of CSG Inc., a consulting firm here in Los Angeles. And today's guest, Dr. Drew Penske. Thank you for joining us, doctor. How are you today? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, I appreciate the time. Uh, you know, it's been kind of crazy uh, trying to connect with you lately. It just seems like you're all over the map lately. And I appreciate you... Uh, taking the time with us today. Sure. Pleasure. So uh, I don't know if people ought to know about this. I'm just going to, I'm just going to do something different than what I normally don't do, but I just want to just talk to you about your life. Really crazy. So started out um, uh, in like early career and you were on a show. <laughs> a lot of people don't know this, but you were on Wheel of Fortune. Is oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> How was that? That's, that's, I wish you wouldn't take that out. I, I was uh, a guest on the Ellen show a few years ago, and she sprung that on me. Yeah. Of that, and they actually had to go back into the Merv Griffin vaults to pull it out. And I always <laughs> lived in fear that somebody would find that tape. And, I, and, and Ellen goes, well, what, are you, what are you feeling? What are you, what are you thinking? I go, I, I, you know what I'm thinking? Face your fears. It's not that bad. It was, it's humiliating, but not terrible. Uh. But, but why, why, why did, did you want to get on that show for a reason? Were you a fan of that show? Or? No, I, my friend, um, a good friend of mine, went on and won a car. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit, if he could do that, I could do that. Let, let yeah. so, I, so I worked my way in on and then just got creamed by the wheel. Oh, my God. We play, we play it here at the house all the time on the Wii. So, uh, that it was just, fun. It was a lot of fun. I mean, it was I'd never been exposed to any of that. I, I was just literally, I was going to go get a car. That's what, that's what my goal was. And um, <laughs> you know, wiped out. Yeah. I mean, I, if you go through um, Wikipedia, it has all these great facts about you. And uh, I don't know if you ever looked at it lately, but it's, uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty impressive. I mean, uh, you know, starting off, of course, with the Wheel of Fortune and then goes on into a radio segment show. Uh, which later became um, probably one of the large, the longest running television or radio shows in your career, which is Loveline. It's yeah. um, so, uh, then a myriad of different types of like uh, projects, um, Celebrity Doctor Rehab, um, Sober House, Sober Living, Addiction Stories, Sex Rehab, um, uh, all the teen shows. I mean, it's it's incredible how you were you, you you became this doctor right and yeah. then you became this more of a television radio personality uh, was it always that way for you did you want that or is that just something no. that just just happened no, it happened i i just you know there's there's an entrepreneurial lesson in here too i just always said yes to everything i would just say yes i i, I no matter what it was i go all right let's go explore that let's see what that is i don't know but <laughs> but i i always was very reluctant 
to think of myself as somebody in the media. I, I always told them, I, I'll do the media, but leave me alone to practice medicine. Just you can't interfere with medicine. And, right. um, and even I remember when we were doing Loveline, the TV show, I said, all right, I, we can do this, but it's got to be Friday afternoon and Saturday afternoon because that's all I got. And uh, they crank, we just, I'd see patients in the morning or go to the hospital and then the afternoon we do shows and you know we were so naive back then we would do like six shows in a day we just change our clothes do another show change our clothes do another show <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't know that was a lot of television it seemed pretty yeah. easy to me. yeah that's 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 it's amazing i mean so you you still have a current practice in pasadena yeah where you, where you see patients yeah so you're not just a you're not just a personality in television radio. You actually still practice medicine. Yeah. I, I don't do the workaholic stuff I did for decades. I, you know, I used to have like four different things going at once. I would, I was running medical services in a psychiatric hospital. I was running addiction services in the psychiatric hospital. I had a hospital medical practice that included in critical care. I did a lot of critical care work and then I had an outpatient medical practice. And so I would, you know, get up at five in the morning and see the hospital patients. Then I'd see the outpatients from eight to two. And then from two to 10, I'd be at the psychiatric hospital. That's incredible. I mean, how did you find the time to do all that? I mean, early in your career, you, you just, were- You just heard it. I was five in the morning to 10 at night. And that was seven days a week. And uh, <laughs> I had a nursing home practice too. At the same time, I had to see hundreds, of, well, it was hundreds of nursing homes. Well, a hundred nursing home patients at one point. And um, I'd have to squeeze that in on the weekend somewhere. That's crazy. So uh, when did you first get your medical license? 80, license 85. And how old were you then? 26. <laughs> nice. 26. Wow. And you just celebrated a birthday. 62. Wow. Happy birthday, fellow Virgo. I was on the 5th. Oh, happy birthday right there. Yeah. Yeah. I sent you a little gif. In your uh, your text message, I am really, really not a text person. <laughs> I, I hate texting. You do. You yeah, this I consider anything I carry with me an emergency instrument. Like if <laughs> if if something comes through here, it's an emergency. Stop what you're doing and, and, and oh. Okay. It's like a beep. I, I was head on beeper for so many years and, then, <laughs> and a digital beeper that, that if you're coming through to me, I must, I, I, I'm like Pavlov and I must do it. And, and I'm, and I'm chasing <laughs> things all day long. That people okay. Okay. I, I get it. I get it. Uh, uh, for the younger generation listening to the show, uh, the beeper that, uh, Dr. Jupensky is talking about is it, is it the medical beeper or is it the, actually the pack bell beepers that we used to have before cell phones or both? <laughs> I had all different kinds of beepers. I, I had a hospital beeper that would go beep, 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 and a voice would come over the phone. I had, a, <laughs> I had a beeper that I'd have to call an exchange to get the message. Oh, then, yeah. Then I had a beeper that would have a message, you know, specifically on it. Oh. And but, but that's any if anybody's getting to me directly in real time, I, I just consider that an emergency. Oh, I see. I just thought you didn't like me as much because it took no, forever. I'm busy trying to things. <laughs> well, I um, going through the the the, the myriad of uh, current you know shows and topics, um, just to name a few. Um, and you can find all this stuff out on drdrew.com, where you can find Dr. Drew. Uh, for all of his current uh, projects and to reach out to him for some really important stuff. But currently um, it's Ask Dr. Drew podcast. 
dose of Drew, Doctor Drew after dark, um, Adam and uh, Adam Carolla and, Dara, and so the Drew podcast. Me, that's all you just you just push a whole bunch of them together. So if I do a streaming show every day, right, uh, and that's an hour hour and a half with guests typically. One day a week, at least, we do with phone calls. That's the Ask Drew one. The other is the Dose. Then I have a series of podcasts. Adam and I are still together. We do a podcast most days. Uh, I have a podcast by myself at his network. And then I have a podcast at your mom's house with, with Christina P. called After Dark. That's crazy. And, and tell us about the Swole Patrol. Is that still going on? Not going. Not going. That's, <laughs> that's your program. There's lots. And, and the uh, date, what was the other one? The weekly infusion. We stopped doing that. Oh, yeah. That was the podcast that I was on. So, yeah, we stopped doing that with um, we took the Bob Forrest one. We stopped that, too. Mm. Okay. And, and you still are on KBC uh, doing your no, midday I, show? Yeah, I, I did that show for six years. I'm no longer on KBC. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, we need to update some of the stuff on Wikipedia and your website. <laughs> That's good. Well, yeah, um, we had, um, it's kind of a, kind of a tough day, as you know, uh, being that we're actually recording this podcast on, uh, September 11th and, um, it's a sad day for America. Drew, what was it like for you on that day? Do you know exactly what happened and where you were and what you were feeling? Oh yeah. I, I remember it vividly. I was, um, I uh, it was listening. I woke up to Ralph Garman on the radio because we I used to have a clock radio that was set to K Rock and is a local Los Angeles station here. And Ralph came on. The first thing we heard was, "You may not have heard, but a plane has hit the World Trade Center." And my wife and I flew out of bed and yeah. went downstairs. And at that point, it looked like it had been a small plane that had sort of been an accident that had hit the the first tower. And a lot of misinformation, a lot of unclarity about what was going on. We used to have this TV down by our fireplace, really like a like a tube television. We were yeah. watching on. Um, uh, people, people, younger people wouldn't even know what I'm talking about anymore. And, and, <laughs> and uh, but it was a television with a tube. Yeah. And and um, and we were there, sort of having breakfast and stuff. And uh, the kids were kind of watching this, and they seemed kind of confused. They were in third grade. Mm. And, uh, and I was talking to one of my best friends on this when the second plane hit and uh, he kept going to me, he goes, man, they're, they're going down. They're going down. I go, I go, what are you talking about? I go, we're, we're going to fix these things. There's a, there's a big, in, there's a big impact thing. We're going to go repair it. He goes, no, no, they're toast. They're going down. And while he was saying that the first one went and I, 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 I was sort of out of body at that point, could not believe it. And I thought, oh, this is. I got angry. I got super duper angry. And, and um, I remember we had to call the school or the kids going to school or not. And we, the school, our, our school elected to have a normal day. And I remember talking to the teacher when I got there and, you know, just, and I remember when, when I piled the kids into the car to go to school, I just said, you have to remember this day because things are no longer the same. This, this changes the world. This changes where we are and things are now different. Yeah. And uh, they all did not remember me saying that, <laughs> but I, I asked them, please not to forget. And they forgot. Um, but I remember saying that and just thinking, this is how this generation is going to deal with this. I don't know. And I remember I was on the Craig Ferguson show that night, uh, just saying, I, I can't believe this. We're not going to prevail through this. We're going to figure out a way to be okay. And it's funny. I feel the same way about, 
you know, coronavirus and all the other BS we're dealing with now. Uh, but this has been so protracted this time. And here we are, you know, remembering September 11th, you know, while we are dealing with something equally as problematic. Uh, I, the problem with this go round is uh, I think I and most people are experiencing crisis fatigue. This is so drawn out and so unpleasant. We're, we're, yeah. we're just tired of it. And yeah. uh, crisis fatigue is a real thing. Yeah, I heard you on, uh, uh, I think it was on Fox, either last night or a day ago uh, with Catherine Barger about the reversal of canceling Halloween oh, yeah. uh, with, um, uh, who's your who's your co-host on Fox again? Um, Alex Michelson. I'm sorry? Alex Michelson. Uh, Alex, yes. And um, yeah, we'll, we get into that in a second, but um you know the 9/11. It was uh, it was insane because I was uh, working for Young's Market and I was selling booze and uh, I had this route that went over Los Angeles and um, I remember my, uh, my my wife at the time said, "Did you see the news?" And you know we just had uh, uh, no idea what was going on and I I started to get scared and you know shaking. I called my boss and I said, "Hey, what's going on?" And you know he's like, "Get to work, hurry <laughs> up." And I said, "Well, what?" He goes, "I don't care." these orders have to keep coming. People need their booze. And I was just like, Oh my God. So I remember eerily just driving super slow on the freeway and going into Calabasas to, uh, to do my job to sell booze. And uh, nobody was in the store. It, it, people were home. It was like really scary. Wow. And, um, so, yeah, I mean, the, that, that changed for me, as you know, uh, what you don't know the listeners is that uh, my oldest brother, Jerry is a retired law enforcement and uh, my other brother, David is retirement uh, from the Marine Corps. So they both were on high alert and it was very scary. So, and today we just remember those that have fallen in the horrible tragedy and uh, hopefully we uh, can teach and instill that we never will forget about what happening going forward. Um, so, but uh, yeah, it's crazy to uh to remember all this stuff so uh going uh forward uh, <laughs> we have a little special guest yeah sebastian's joined the crews we're homeschooling today everybody so there's okay. sebastian yeah <laughs> does, does sebastian get back to go back to school sometime uh sebastian is um we're just doing the homeschooling for now and um they're trying to do the blended but they keep saying yes and then no. So I, I don't think it's going to happen. But, uh, you know, I guess safer for now until we figure out what's happening. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a great segue. I mean, when um, you're talking about uh, uh, the emotional and the, and the, the crisis uh, of being told you can't do anything, um, can you kind of elaborate about that? Because when you were talking with, uh, with Alex and, and uh, County Supervisor uh, uh, Barger, you were, you were like really adamant about saying, hey, this is the newest, latest thing. So yeah. what do you, yeah. Well, we, we've seen all the mental health parameters get worse. So, you know, depression, suicide, at four, four times what they were last year, uh, suicide up, opiate overdose up, substance use up, alcohol up, alcohol deaths up, everything up, up, up. And we've known it, we've watched it through, the, through this whole lockdown. And it was yeah. clear that the people making decisions were not paying attention to the health of the population. They're only paying attention to this illness, which is not their job. Yeah. But okay. Uh, and now it, it's all falling under kind of an umbrella of a term called crisis fatigue. 
And as soon as I say it, everyone will know what I'm talking about because we're all feeling it. And unfortunately, when you feel powerless and helpless and uh, are, are, have no sense of normalcy long enough, you get a certain amount of dread and fatigue, and then you start getting more accelerating mental health issues. They have to pay attention to this. And we, don't, we do not know the full impact that young people are feeling the same thing, except they don't have a context. Mm. They're eight or 10 years old or 12 years old, and they're told their family's going to die if they go outside or if they go outside, if they don't yeah. wear a mask. I mean, yeah. this is going to have untold impact on their development. And then we're withholding them from school where they can have at least an outlet and continue their development and regulate yeah. themselves. No, well, they'll give them none of that. So this is, this is very, very concerning. And I see almost no attention being paid to this. I, I know the federal government is about to launch a big initiative. Uh, they're concerned, but I don't see any county health officials, which are the ones actually responsible for this, looking out for it. Well, back, in, I think, a few years ago, um, during another type of um, another virus that outbroke, you, you had contracted h one H1N1, yeah. And how did you do with that? Oh, it almost killed me. Okay. That, that one killed 600,000 people worldwide, and it, near, it killed primarily 20 to 40-year-olds. So it was a much more, you know, it killed healthy people. It, it did not kill old people. And so it really was a, a very serious thing. And uh, there was something, somewhere between, somewhere near a billion cases worldwide. And yet, my, my point has always been, you barely knew that happened. You don't even know that. I know what happened because I got it. But the rest of you don't know that happened. And I have no idea. Very similar outbreak. And one, this outbreak we're ending the world for, and the other, you don't even know it happened. So it seems like there should be some middle ground in here that we could get into. But in any event, it's, um, I was so sick with that that um, – my wife at the end of it said, hey, you're, that wasn't normal. Something's wrong with you. And she, you're going to get a physical. And I'm like, nah, I got, I've got my cardiologist. I got my this. I got my specialist. And they go, okay, I'll get a physical. That's when I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Oh, wow. So that was, that was something that was caught due to the fact that you got the illness. Right. It probably actually had nothing to do with the illness, but it uh, prompted my wife to get me in. And mm. uh, I had some had some evaluations where some really good judgment was applied and they made the diagnosis. Mm. Well, so that's, uh, well, I'm glad that uh, your wife was able to drag you back for testing. I know that men in general were very, very um, particular and we just, yes, we know everything. We're, we're fine. We're fine. Throw some dirt on it. But we always think if, if it's, if it's something, it'll show itself. If I really, if it's really bad, I'll know it. Otherwise yeah. forget it. Right. Right. So, you know, when you, when you talk about your experience with this, uh, with these viruses over the years of your life, uh, in the beginning, um, you had basically had this point of view that you're, you're talking about now that you were, you know, chastised for, you know, it wasn't, uh, you weren't trying to create a panic and you weren't trying to uh, mislead anybody. I could see the panic. I could see the panic coming. And I was trying to reduce that because I I felt, I felt like we were going to, that, that non-medical people, we're going to force a reaction out of panic that was going to hurt more people than the virus itself. And that's where we are. That's what's happened. So, so then let me ask you this. Not only do we have the mental health consequences, we have this other problem where people are delaying their medical care out of fear of COVID. And now we have people coming in with advanced diseases of all type and are dying because we don't get these things early enough. Sure. So, 
going back to earlier in the year, you were pretty much, you know, told that you were wrong. I would imagine that uh, someone in your, your, your reputation as a doctor and being on TV and on radio, people challenge you all the time and tell you that you're wrong. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. You're just some stupid guy that plays a doctor on TV, but it prompted, it prompted something I'd never seen from you before, which was an apology um, about how you expressed, um, I guess the, not the fear, but you know, the severity of this disease. I, I, am, or illness. I am happy to apologize where I get things wrong. I have no problem with that. I, I, I got the, I got two things wrong. I got the infectivity wrong. Okay. And I got the the more the more serious manifestations in at-risk individuals. So so I got the, the ferociousness wrong in, in a small population and the general infectivity I got kind of wrong. Um, I didn't get wrong. I didn't get right. I, you know, I didn't go into what I got right. What I, I got right was for the vast, 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 vast majority of cases, it's the flu. Well, that was my next. That was my next question. I'm going to say, I, what did you get right? So, yeah. vast majority of cases, the flu, and it's not that different from H1N1. So, why are we having such a huge reaction? That, uh, yeah, those were the two. Those were the things I was pushing, but I was pushing it without also saying this is very infectious. We have to wear a mask. I didn't know that. And also the ferociousness in certain populations. But let me ask you this. Why, why did you feel you needed to apologize, Dr. Drew? Um, mostly with my kids it demanded it. They were like, you have to apologize. I'm like, okay, I'll apologize. I, I got it wrong and I'll be happy to do that. And it was, and there was quite a shit storm going. And I've always felt that mm. if you make a mistake, uh, step up quick and admit it. Mm. And, and, and I have no problem with that. Okay. And now, what are you feeling about all this? Because now we're starting to get some data because it's been six months. Do you feel that you were on point still with some changes with the data? Uh, you know, because I, you're, Dr. Fauci always says, well, we just didn't have the data. That's why I said, don't do that. Yeah, so, and, and, I, and I always said, just listen to Fauci. I punctuated every one of my positions with, I've been around Fauci for 35 years. He knows what he's talking about. He'll get us through this. Because I, I, knew, I knew I'd get stuff wrong. But I knew that he would take a very conservative position that would be the right position, maybe excessive, but okay, I know he'll get us through this. So just listen to him. Don't worry about me. Listen to him. And, and I, I said that every time I commented. Um, and I said, I, I said it in a particular way, too. Where I said, let him be your North Star, because he's, he's always been my North Star. I've always just followed him. But, but does, he, uh, and, does, and does he, Drew, does he, does he, Drew, does he have that ability to be right? Can he get stuff wrong, too? I didn't say, I didn't say uh-uh get us through this. Uh, I didn't say, of course, he's not always going to be right. Nobody, we don't know what, we, nobody was going to be hundred percent right. Nobody was hundred percent right. Nobody. I mean, Nancy Pelosi stood in Chinatown and told people to come to, come to Chinatown uh, as, as the thing was going. Yeah. That was wrong. Yeah, uh, yeah. Trump, Trump was saying wrong stuff. There was many people said wrong things. Fauci said some wrong things. Burke said some wrong things. You know, Fauci said, don't wear masks. And you know why he said don't wear masks? For the very reason we're getting into right now is that we, in my generation, we were always trained that viruses are transmitted on the hands, really important mm -hmm. viruses. And so the idea of messing with a mask on your face, we didn't want that. We, we were, and, and now we're heading into influenza season where the mask is going to go against us on flu. So get your flu shot. We didn't know that it was almost exclusively transmitted in droplet in the air. Interesting. Interesting. That's very everybody, interesting. Everybody, everybody got that wrong. Everybody got that wrong because we just didn't know it.
I mean, you know, I've been, I've been listening to you for a while and other uh, commentators and other doctors, and, and it's very true. It's, it seems very confusing uh, about uh, which way to do it and how to well, go about it. That's the other thing. This is, again, part of what I was pushing, what I was pushing back on with the beanie. I kept telling the press to shut up, shut up. Because the way medicine, medicine is a collaborative process. Mm. We, we, and and you, to have it forming into headlines doesn't make any sense. We, we have an experience, we, we train on cases, we read literature constantly so we know the landscape of literature for our field. Then when a particular thing comes along, we read deep in a particular area and we're able to contextualize and analyze that literature in the context of all that's out there because we're reading all of it. Mm -hmm. And we know how to analyze this data. Then we go, I've reached a conclusion. And then we go collaborate with our peers. We know, so that we, and we know we will interact with peers who will have a different opinion. And mm -hmm. together amongst ourselves, we'll reach the truth or at least clinical efficacy to the best of our ability. And this idea that we're, you know, we don't know what we're talking about because we go from one thing to the next. That's how medical science is done. That's how it is done. It's a collaborative process built on the literature that you have a wide understanding of that gets you moving in a positive direction on behalf of patients. Right. You know, so that last whole <laughs> dissertation is just so foreign to a lot of us. We don't understand the medical speak and we just, we understand what you're trying to tell us, but at the same time, it's, it's terrifying. I mean, just listening to you, it's just like, it's like, it's hard to understand it. It's Chinese to me. Um, and it's like, what do we do? And I guess the, I guess the next great question for you is Drew is like, how do you really feel about all this today? You know, with, with all of the confusion. Um, I, I, I feel like, I feel like that's actually a really good question. I, I feel like we need to find our best spot, you know, a balanced spot where we live with the virus without with not minimal uh, growth of the virus and minimizing harm. So th this, the, the public health officials seem to think we're going to wipe out the virus or it's going to go away or something. It's not going away, not going away. And so we need no. to find that spot where the least, there's no acceleration in, in the uh, transmission that we get to as deep a baseline as possible. And we start to live our lives. So we don't have all these other consequences that are inevitable but from these extreme measures they're taking to control this one illness. And, and, and we can live with this. We can, we can do it. It's not, it's not, we're going to have to because that's how it's going to be. Even when there's a vaccine, the virus is still going to be around a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what a lot of people are saying. This is just another form of a, of a flu virus and we're going to have to live with it. And we're going to have to let the professionals get our vaccines and we're going to have to, you know, take our vaccines, but not necessarily force or mandate it. I mean, uh, I was listening right. to your last podcast about how you said California was draconian in its measures of shutting us it, down versus the rest of the United States. It is. When I go around the country, I can't believe how different it is yeah. and how different the population is relating to their government. This feels like a concentration camp. I'm not saying I'm not, that's obviously hyperbole, but it feels like it mm. when you go somewhere else where the relationship with the government is encouraging. This mm. is, the, this is, this is like, we're going to get you. We're going to shut you down. It's always, we're going to shut you down. Behave yourself. We're going to shut you down. That's why people go, screw it. I'm not going to wear a mask. Well, so that's, that's another great question. I mean, I know you're not a politician and I know you're not like, you know, spreading your, your viewpoints, right or left wing, whatever. But why is that? I wonder in the state of California where we live, why is it just 
bad leadership. That's all I see. It's I, you don't, it doesn't matter which side you're on. If you're bad leadership, it's bad leadership. And it's, and it's bad health messaging. <clears throat> it's what I've been doing my whole life. That's what Loveline was. It was, how do you get people to, it was during the AIDS epidemic is why I went on the radio. That's why I was on the radio. Yeah. Anthony, Anthony Fauci said, you young physicians get out there and change the behavior. I went, okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and, what I, and what I learned <clears throat> by doing that was that you, you, the way to change behavior <clears throat> is have a narrative, a story, arc, a case. Yep. It needs to be relatable to the population you're trying to reach mm-hmm. and you need some entertainment value. That's it. You don't have Barbara Ferrer, who's our LA County you know, health official going, today, three souls were lost to coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's horrible. We don't need that. We, we're feeling bad enough. We get um, it. It's awful. Tell us, tell, give, us, give us a story where you know, the proper behavior resulted in a good outcome. That's mm-hmm. what we need to hear. Lots of that. Lots of that. That's uh, that's that's funny. It's true. I mean, we you turn on any channel, it's all about doom and gloom. There's no uh, new path. There's no like, hey, it's bad. You know, it's it's oh God. it's scary. Well, that's why I don't have had it. Been impacted mean, in bad ways, and it, it's just oh. And you're saying, bad. and you're so you're also saying now that that because of that messaging, now we have this this crisis, this mental crisis. Well, we have the mental crisis because A, there's horrible messaging and B, there's no attending to the consequence of all the locking down. But the, the really bad part of the bad messaging is the resistance to the mask. Because then you have a population that goes, they're hypocrites, I don't like them, I don't want to listen to them anymore, I'm not going to wear a mask. And, no and, my, my, and I've been begging people, I've been saying, not the mask, <laughs> no, so do something else, open your business, but, but wear the mask, because we know it worked, it really works, it's why, we're, it's why we're doing such a great job right now, just don't, don't draw the line at the mask, choose something else. Yeah. Do something, yep. Civil disobedience, yes, go to Halloween, go trick-or-treating. They tried to close yeah. our Halloween down in LA County, uh, go do that. Yeah, what what was that about? Where where uh, our county supervisor felt it necessary to reverse that? Was it because she said on this interview? I'm, I have a clip on it, but it, it, she said, "I don't know who leaked that, but that's not what is really the truth." Right. Because she knew it was insane. Because she knew it was too far. It's a bridge too far, and she knew that she, even they knew they would lose everybody completely if they tried to pull that one. That it made no sense. Right. So it, it, it seems draconian it seems excessive it seems capricious it seems ridiculous to any human looking at it yeah this is uh, your leadership in a brand new woke society so i yeah. uh it's yeah. you're right i don't think everybody's looking at the cause and the effect and how bad it can be if we create this uh pandemonium style well, right. of and then and then you have all the the unrest and all the unpleasantness that's going on the streets and stuff and that's just adding to the crisis fatigue and adding to the dysregulation we're feeling emotionally mm-hmm. and adding to people reaching for bottles and pills and everything else are you talking about are you talking about the current riots in the u.s yeah yeah i know and, so and I, I i sort of put that all under you know the political strife you know it's well, <laughs> well you know the thing the thing is that i i just started getting into a knowledge of politics. Um, this last March, uh, one of my closest friends, Susie, she goes, I'm just telling you to understand what's going on around. And I had to come out of this bubble because I live in the Batten disease bubble, of course, where I'm trying to fix Sebastian, trying to get him a cure for Batten disease research and all that good stuff, which you've helped me do that with your show. Thank you so much again. Uh, but I, I started to really look at both sides of the coin and I've had both sides of the leadership 
uh, endorsed Baton disease research uh, lately um, with uh, Assemblywoman Christy Smith, as well as uh, Congressman Mike Garcia, and on and on and on, of course, with the Senate uh, passing SRJ25, where we have Baton disease in California now, thanks to Senator Scott Wilk. So, but I started really looking at it, and I just, it just <clears throat> blown away at how it's just gotten so crazy out there. Crazy. And, crazy. And how people, like you said, that I know, are drinking and drugging, and they're going out there and they're saying, "I don't give a fuck anymore." So, how can how can when you say we have to help people change that behavior? How do you change that behavior in, in the people that are, "I don't give a fuck anymore" because you're telling me I can't do anything, so I'm going to go do it anyway? How right. do you stop that? How do you do that? You you change your leadership style, or you change your leaders, right? Yeah. Because it, that's a direct response to them being inconsistent, hypocritical, excessive, capricious. People don't respond well to that stuff. No, and their health messaging, and and it's and and and, cl- and they and they form their own opinions and they look at it and they go, "This is, this is not. Why are they doing this? It doesn't make sense." And so it's you know they of course push back. Right. So I mean the one of the topics, uh, one of my other interviews was the. You know, people just want rational leadership. Yes. Uh, and, I, I, listen, uh, I, I, in, on my After Dark show, we formed, we formed a, a new movement called the Rational uh, <laughs> National Revolution. Rational Revolution. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how do we join? <laughs> yeah, join us. We're gonna have we're gonna have a T-shirt. You know, we're gonna and we're gonna have you know profiles of us look like Lenin. You know. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. So, but but to to your to your cause and your effect. Um. Yeah. I for one, when I started to learn about what's happening, I am confused. I don't believe it. I don't want to do it. And you're not going to take away my freedoms and my liberty. So, right. I don't really I don't really understand and all that stuff. But then the worst thing happens to me in my life when my father passed away from it, right. from the uh, coronavirus. And uh, you were uh, one of the people helping my father and I appreciate that. And, I, and I'm, I'm hearing all this um, stuff about the ventilators and how they're the cause of the deaths and all that other stuff and the money that the hospitals are making on the COVID and the death certificates. And it's just, boy, oh boy, so much effing noise, man. Oh, yeah. and so, it's, so let, me, let me frame those things for you. The, in the fog of war, in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, we did not fully know how to manage the cytokine storm. So there's a viral phase of the illness, which is the flu, and there's this post-flu piece that some at-risk people get, and particularly elderly folks, where the cytokine system activates and essentially the inflammation attacks all the organs, and that's how you get ARDS and kidney failure and all these things. And if you have certain risk factors, the worse, the higher the probability and the more inflammatory that reaction is. Now we know Decadron works for that. We know delaying the ventilator is an important thing for that. We know that these, some of these cytokine modulators, the RANTI system, the IL-6 inhibitors, maybe the antiviral medicines in the early states, uh, the remdesivir, sometimes hydroxychloroquine early on. These, all the, we kind of know how to use these things now in a way that have improved outcomes. So things are better. So that was that. So that's the ventilator piece was not that ventilators were causing the problem. It's just we didn't quite know the timing of when to get people on to optimize their ability to get through this and yeah. reduce the damage to the lung. But you know, when pe- somebody's sitting there and they're not breathing, I mean, you don't have a lot of choices. So, so there's that. Now, as far as the hospital and COVID, the hospitals were uh, given a weird, um, a distorted motivation 
which is essentially because the government asked them to shut down to all other medical care and just take COVID patients, a COVID diagnosis was more highly reimbursed than it normally would be in order to keep the hospitals open. The hospitals would have closed had they not done this. All of their usual revenue sources, all the procedures, all the, everything else was shut down, just COVID. So there was a distorted motivation for sure to put COVID on everything, but it was just to get by. It was not to be highly, uh, it was not as though they were making a lot of money. They were just trying to keep their doors open until the government allowed them to bring in more cases. So, and, and then how we, you know, how we fill out death certificates in this country is such a mess. It's such a mess. And it's, it's bearing out in terms of how we understand the data amongst the, the people that do succumb to this illness. It's all a mess right now. Yeah. That's no, a total mess. You know, I miss my dad and uh, I know you and him were friends and yeah. uh, I was going back in the history of um, the, the addiction side of your life and how you help others. I, I was trying to put it together. When did you meet Chuck and Michelle Valona? I, I, I figured that the other day too. Uh, I, I, was it was Lost and Cena's days, right? Yep. Yeah. It was like somewhere between like 89 and 93, something like in there. Somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, so for the listeners, my, my parents got sober in seven, early 70s. And um, we came across uh, Dr. Drew when I was a teenager I had no idea who you were, I, but I listened to your show. It was really odd. It was realistic to love line because I, I would just laugh through all the sexual shit. Um, and then uh, come to find out that you and my mom were, were buddies and she had said, Oh, it's always been lost in Cenas. And um, so those days in, in your recovery, um, when you were helping others, did that, was that a specialty in your field? I mean, why, I mean, you, you have a, a regular doctor's license and an MD to practice medicine. Was that your specialty of addiction? No, 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 no. There was no specialty back then. Okay. So, so here's, you don't know how that happened to me. So no, I I'm don't. an internist. I, like I said, I was doing critical care. I was going to be a cardiologist. Okay. And, and I started moonlighting at Las Encinas, taking care of the medical needs of psychiatric patients in the early 80s. And, and I got very interested in it. And, and I, you know, and... I, I always kind of had an interest in the brain and things, and mm-hmm. but I was really dealing with just the medical side of the psychiatric patient, and I got very good at, you'd, you'd be amazed how frequently these medical problems figure into psychiatric syndromes. And, uh, and of course, all the sick people were also down in the drug unit. And at that t- day, this is in the you know, early 80s, there was a guy named Mike Myers that was running the unit back then. Mm. He had made a clinical discipline out of drug withdrawal. Mind you, I've been working in a county hospital for years and took care of tons of heroin addicts and alcoholics, and no one ever gave me a training in how to take somebody off these. It was all haphazard and sort of random. And he was like, this is the protocol you follow. I'm like, oh, okay. I got very good at it. So everyone's starting to ask me to see lots of addicts because I'm good at getting them off the drugs. Didn't know anything about addiction. Nothing. In fact, I... I, but I liked the culture of the unit and I liked tr- treating and helping addicts. And I would always, I remember I'd sit in the nursing station and look through the treatment room and see the 12 steps on the wall and go, what is that stupid stuff? I'm doing the real thing here. I'm getting people on the <laughs> It doesn't I, work. Yeah. I, I was like, what's so silly? What is that stuff? These group of guys. Uh, and and uh, saw a couple patients recover 
uh, in the late 80s. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. What is this? I want to know more about this. It, these people were dying a year ago, and now they're amazing. How, how did that happen? So I started digging into more understanding the treatment. I, I, I think I took my first... Yeah, I took my first board certification in addiction medicine like 1991. And then um, Dr. Rutland was the director there at the time. And he asked me to be the assistant director because I was down there all the time. And he goes, hey, don't worry, you just, you know, around the holidays, I'll take a week off and you just cover me. You're there all the time anyway, no big deal. Six months later, he quit. And all of a sudden, I move into the position of director of that unit and uh, had to really work on my training uh, in the mm. field at the time, which was starting to coalesce into a field at the time. Mm. And uh, like I said, there was a board certification and I took that and, mm. and it still took me another f at least five years to get really good at it. Um, and then built a good team and we built a great team there and it became, then it became a significant percentage of my time. And, and all the while, while you were still doing your practice. I was doing general medicine, but I, I but the addiction part, it really expanded in terms of what I was doing every day. And then, you know, then we jumped on wheel of fortune, then you're, took off to start them. <laughs> Real fortune was 84. <laughs> We're talking 90. <laughs> Just teasing you. Yeah. So um, everybody's, uh, of course, they're excited that you're on the show today. Of course, they sent in some questions. Um, they want to know if you're sober. Are you a normie? Person. No, I'm a normie, as far as I can tell. So uh, what does a normie mean in the world of drinking? It means I don't have the genetic potential to lose control. Uh, it also, uh, part of that gene is, I don't really like these things very much. They don't feel very good to me. I mean, one of the things about being an addict, you have to like how they feel. They have to feel good to you. Yeah, and, yeah, I and, <laughs> Don't feel that good or don't feel good yeah. at all, so. Yeah, well, I mean, the reason why I raised my hand, I laugh because I, you know, I am recovered coming up on 24 years if I make it. Congratulations. Um, you actually were uh, one of the people that uh, put a kibosh to that, uh, during one of our visits for an STD and a blood test. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. When you uh, said, Hey, I'm got your liver counts back. <laughs> let's have a talk. Um, but um, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, a lot of people don't understand that the, the normie uh, has one or two drinks a month and they're kind of like, eh. And, well, it's, uh, a, it's a genetic thing. It's just a thing. It's yeah. like everything. So, you, so, so you're saying that, that, that drink and that alcohol use is linked to genetics. Oh, absolutely. In fact, in fact, the way we say it is that alcohol, uh, alcoholism is accounted for on the basis of genetics alone. 60% of alcoholism is accounted for on the basis of genetics alone. The genes aren't destiny, right? You have to have other things that usually that activate it, uh, but you have to have the gene. It's, an, it's a necessary feature to get the disease. So when you now know that that's a direct correlation and you were looking at the 12 steps on the wall and you were looking at the beginning of your career in, in, in this uh, uh, specific area, uh, do you still feel that um, these groups are helpful aside from the genetics to, I guess, get into recovery? A lot of people debunk uh, groups, AA, all these other stuff. They've been, they've been under attack for the last 10 years. And I am telling you, it is the cornerstone of treatment. If you do not use this empiric model that we've been using successfully for decades, no. you are essentially resisting getting better. Uh, now, John Kelly and Keith Humphreys, the head of uh, addiction medicine at Harvard, and Keith, the, uh, the head of addiction services in Stanford, I uh, have podcasts with both of them. I think the John Kelly one we just put up again. He just completed a Cochrane analysis, which is the highest caliber meta-analysis available it's the highest quality medical literature 
proving once and for all that uh, that 12 step is as effective or more than any professionally managed service and it's free. Wow. If we want to argue about healthcare costs, point look no further than 12 step as your solution. Stop it. It's free, it's on every corner <laughs> and it's scientifically this it's scientifically particularly if abstinence is your goal, scientifically as good or better than mm. any professionally managed services. And oh, did I say it's free? Yeah, it works for me. I mean, it doesn't work for everybody. And I agree with you. It's the behavior. You don't want to, you don't want to change and you don't want to do the work. But um, got a question uh, for Jessica out here in Los Angeles. A young female says, what was the interest in you doing teen mom? I mean, why help these girls at all? Uh, because I knew, I knew that would have an impact on teen pregnancy in the country. Uh, I, I just knew it because it's, it fits that model. I was telling you, relatable source, narrative, entertainment value. I knew when young people watched the, that experience, they would go, uh, it's the it's, it's same thing as love life. It's the exact same thing. All these people having adverse experiences, I don't want to do that. And, and if you look at teen pregnancy in the United States, the quarter that we began airing that show, you see it immediately start to fall. And they've now done two academic studies that show that if in communities where there's high viewership of that show, they have the lowest levels of teen pregnancy. That's incredible. So you're, you're, you're attributed to that about being part of that solution. I or, knew it. Good work. I knew it. Good work. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, Stacy Roth out of Hillside says, Hey, where's my mattresses? Yeah. Uh, so, so Susan's <laughs> in the room here that she needs more, does she need more mattresses? I yes, I remember the mattresses, but does she need more? We gave them a bunch of them. <laughs> Uh, I've been in uh, uh, basically collaborating with Stacy. Uh, she's actually a new board member on Project Sebastian. And uh, oh, well, listen, it, Hillsides is the highest quality. The, if we had a million hillsides out there, that we would not have social problems in this country. They're <laughs> kids, they're with the homeless kids, they're dealing with the at-risk kids, and it's a therapeutic living environment that is second to none. Uh, she says a lot of great stuff for you, and uh, she's hoping that one day she gets to. Uh, uh, chat with you again because you basically did a solid for her and her organization. She's uh, always talking no, about we're you. Always, we're always behind Hillsides, always. All right, I know we're coming to the end of the hour here, and I know you got to go. So just a quick uh, things about for CSG. Um, some tough questions, maybe not for you, but for some. Um, what's your biggest failure, Drew, that's brought you to Clarity today that made you go, oh, okay. You know, I, I, I – Harken back to my freshman year in football, uh, those sorts of things. When I was uh, uh, getting my ass handed to me, I was an absolute failure. I was thinking about quitting. And I remember the coach came up to me and he put his face right under my face mask. And he goes, stay with this. You'll be, you'll be okay. You'll be okay. And, and just, or he said something, something about just hanging in. And because uh, he could sense I was just about out. And I thought, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. And I ended up becoming the captain of the football team by my senior year. Wow. What was your position? Defensive end. Really? Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, not really the failure. You said the failure that brought you to clarity, right? So that's that right. failing moment brought me to clarity. Yeah. Oh, nice. Well, that's the, the moment where we either, you know, fight or flight, right? Best compliment ever received? Um. I mean, the show alone, we could add, pick from five of them, I think. But I made a difference. That, that's important to me. What's that? When somebody says I made a difference, that's, that's all I need. In, 
your life. Just by, oh, that's nice. And um, let me ask you about something about today. What are you most passionate about today? What, you know, what's making you get out of bed every day? Let's, let's say what, what does Dr. Drew like to do? I mean, what's, what's on your mind today? I mean, why do you do it? What's going on? Um, I'm not sure I can answer that in some sort of easy answer. It's, it's whatever the, wherever my engine's coming from, it's kind of always been there. Um, again, making a difference and there's always stuff to be done and God knows right now we're in the middle of a big mess and, and I'm trying to help people navigate and trying to make a difference where I can. Um, so it just kind of keeps me going. Yeah. I mean, my family keeps me going. My, the, the, right. So you, you, you have a lovely wife, uh, Sue back right here. She'll come right around now and say hi to you. I will. <laughs> no, I haven't met Sue yet. I've only talked to her on the phone. But uh, you know, we appreciate uh, Sue letting us have Drew because I know that she is mission control, as you say, uh, and three great children. Uh, it seems like you're blessed. You have a great life. Uh, and helping others is, is, is something we should all strive to do uh, going okay. forward. Um, so, uh, Drew, thank you so much for joining us today on the CSG podcast. Uh, Connections with Purpose is sponsored by CSG, the only personal consulting company you'll ever need. Our passion is designed around helping others with over 30 years of experience in a number of different industries. CSG can put you on the most efficient path to success. Our consultants will help you level up quickly, which specializing in CBD, childhood, illness, addiction, recovery areas, just to name a few. Please call us today at 818-724-5987. That's 818-724-5987 to get your free 15-minute consult. Drew, you're awesome. Hi, Chris. Talk soon. Yes, sir. Thanks again for coming out. All right, man. Got to run. All good? Thank you for listening to the Connections with Purpose podcast, where we listen to the stories of people just like you who have found purpose through connection. If you or anyone you know wants to be a guest on our podcast, please send us a message at ChristopherVolona.com or you can reach us directly at 818-724-5987 to be booked on our podcast. Once again, that's 818-724-5987. Tune in next time to another great episode on the Connections with Purpose podcast.